Tschüss. Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway and in these podcasts we're examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have and what we could and would do with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and this is the second of a two-part podcast with Andrew Wilson. Andrew is a founding partner of Charlotte Street Partners, an economist, business analyst and public policy specialist. He's a trustee of the Edinburgh International Culture Summit, Sistema Scotland, National Gallery Scotland and the John Smith Centre for Public Service. He is, of course, one of the people who served on the Sustainable Growth Commission. And if that wasn't enough, he's a director of Motherwell Football Club. In the first episode, we talked about the response to the pandemic, currency, jurors figures, the share of UK debt and assets, and more. But to start this episode, we moved on to Brexit and Scotland's place in the EU. The EU was a big issue in 2014. We know that from speaking to people on the doorsteps during that campaign. The No campaign said that voting yes would take us out of the EU, yet we've been dragged out against our will anyway. Many no voters have now changed their minds as a result of that. Um, but um, but let's tackle the question, how would an independent Scotland go about rejoining the EU? And those issues that we've been talking about, the currency and deficit, how do they come into play? Yeah, I think that's right, because I think the polling evidence does suggest that Brexit has persuaded many people that, that the, the moral case for Britain is diminished, that Britain is isolating itself and that there's a better future by being part of the EU, which many people wanted to remain in, obviously. But we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't also agree and admit that, that Brexit also rather suggests that change can be difficult, that unpicking a union of uh, since 1974 compared to a union since 1707, people are going to be intuitively thinking that this will be more difficult which is why I think we need to take the opposite approach from the Brexiteers. We need to be upfront about how we're going to manage it, upfront about the process, honest about the transition, honest about what it will take. So my understanding is that you can only formally apply to be a member of the European Union when you become independent. So let's assume, fingers crossed, but let's assume there's an independence referendum at some point, you know, next autumn or the autumn after that. I don't know when it might be. If it's successful, then it would be probably about two years before we were formally independent, and that would give you time to set things up, whether it's a central bank and the institutions that you would need. And then what the European Union would be looking to Scotland to do is demonstrate that we will be a good European citizen, that we would have the institutions we require, including an independent central bank, to become a, a member state. We would need to make commitments. We would need to negotiate our re-entry. Some people say, say that that could take up to a further five years, so seven years from a vote, maybe longer. That actually could be accelerated. You know, East Germany joined within weeks, hmm. months. Um, so it is possible for it to be accelerated. But again, you would want it to be done in an orderly fashion. There are a variety of different um, uh, guidance, a key, which, which demonstrate what's needed to join. Some of these are misquoted. 
Mm. So, for example, it's not the case that you require... I mean, nobody's going in without having had their own currency, but there's nothing in the ACI that says you must have your own currency. It does say that you have to have regard for your exchange rate, which really is getting at the fact that they don't want countries to devalue their currency to falsely compete within the single market. And Scotland wouldn't be able to do that, of course, yeah. on our policy and wouldn't seek to. The other one that's also a myth is you have to have a deficit of less than 3% of GDP before you join. That is not the case. Uh, Poland uh, joined and for some years didn't get the deficit below 3%. Other countries also. I don't think there's an EU member in, in the state that, at the moment that actually qualifies for the deficit. No, no, <laughs> the, the stability pact is suspended, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. but, it's, but it, is, it is saying that you can't just run uh, unsustainable deficits mm -hmm. and and of course we wouldn't no. so we need to tell the truth uh, if we do have a deficit it's not going to be as bad as it's made out but but it will still be there and intuitively it would be there because there's an economic model we're trying to change if everything was hunky-dory and we were rich and we had perfectly performing public finances the incentive to change to Roger Mullins point wouldn't be as strong mm -hmm. but Roger's correct you know we need to change so I think that you know I always think find find sort of uh you know virtue in the truth here it's it, being truthful is, is is liberating when it comes to these arguments i remember when alex Salmond and mike russell pulled me out of the civil service as a young 22 year old and said come and work for the party as our first economist and your job is to demonstrate that gers isn't true and basically i spent 18 months of my life trying to argue that gers was was hokum <laughs> and and you know when nicholas sturgeon asked me to chair the growth commission and I thought long and hard about how to go about these things. And I knew one of the things, because what we used to argue against GERS in the 90s uh, was oil revenues. And of course, we know that uh, oil revenues won't be there to sustain us in the future, not least for, for the obvious climate reasons. And so we had to take oil out of the equation. Then we had to find refuge in the truth about what the deficit really was. And actually, when you, when you stop denying the deficit, and when you admit that there is one, and it reflects the way the UK is run, because all of the regions and nations outside the southeast have huge deficits, um, Scotland actually would be the best of the rest, I think, in terms of the performance of the economy. And so our public finances can be getting can be got into good order, um, I think, in an orderly fashion. Um, but, but you do find refuge in the truth of that, and then you get you, then you go about putting it right. And I guess that's the big question after COVID for people in Scotland is. Every country needs stable public finances and, and, and sustainable public finances. Who do you trust to get Scotland's into shape? Would you trust a Tory government you don't vote for? Or would you trust your own politicians that you elect every time? I think the process of getting them into shape would be far better run by, by, by the government that people vote for every time. And that's the lesson of history elsewhere. You know, other countries have got perfectly sustainable public finances, perfectly coherent societies, much more equal societies in the Nordic region for example so there's a there's a there's a there's a truth to be struck for there mm. but denying it and pretending it's all free and easy that you can just print money and ignore the deficit is is not truthful and and those countries that have tried that have had disasters for the very people and it, it, independence to improve the life of and it is normal for countries to run deficits i mean it's quite quite the exception for a country not to have a deficit isn't well, it? High, highly unusual for a country not to have a deficit at any one point in time because Borrowing makes sense to fund, you know, why, why would you, for example, if you are building infrastructure that would benefit 50 years, why would you pay all of that out of taxation mm -hmm. in one year? You'd spread it in much the same way as you spread a mortgage payment. And, and of course, you know, in, in any one year, 
you know, tax revenues can be lumpy. The economy might perform badly one year and really well the next. So obviously all, all countries without exception borrow. Some, some are able to run, well, Norway is able to run a surplus depending on what's happening to oil revenues. Um, but very few can, can run surpluses and it doesn't actually make sense to run surpluses mm. for an extended period. It, along with um, currency and the deficit in 2014, the, the No campaign tried to frighten people about their pensions uh, being devalued in an independent Scotland. Uh, ironic because I think the UK has the worst pensions provision in Europe for uh, people. But what would the pension position be post-independence? Well, on state pension, you're right, Drew. I mean, the UK's state pension, is, I think, is the actual lowest in, in Europe. It's also not funded. So many countries have savings against which pensions are paid out, as would be normal for individuals or companies. The UK doesn't, and that's why one of its big liabilities is an unfunded state pension and underfunded uh, public sector pensions. So, so, so the Scottish government, as I said, well able to fund the state pension. Actually, we ought to be improving it. Um, private sector pensions would not be affected uh, at all because they are privately held. I suppose there is an argument, and, and this is one of the risks politically that we're managing for, that if your pension is 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 managed outside of Scotland, you know, currency fluctuations might make make it better, might make it worse. You don't know, so that, that's the point. If you're a mortgage holder, a pension holder, or a wage receiver, you worry about currency fluctuations, and so we take that worry away for um, the transition period before we're able to address it um, uh, properly. So pen- pensioners should look forward to a better future, I would suggest, um, with independence than they do at present, and there's not too many state pensioners who, who think they've got a good deal out of the UK at present and, and they would be right. Well, I think that's becoming very clear, particularly as the UK government keeps talking about removing those protections such as the triple lock, etc. Uh, from pensioners just now. People can see that happening. Just one, I, I want to come on to a couple of different things in a moment, but just that, you know, in the financial situation, most of our listeners will know about the Barnett formula and have their views on this. A very simple question. Without the Barnett formula and with fiscal powers in place for Scotland, what would be the likely differences in what we could do? Well, um, all, all the Barnett formula does is give Scotland a population share of any increases in spending in relevant Barnettable areas of spending. That, so if the health budget in England goes up by a, a billion quid, then it goes up by 88 million in Scotland broadly, in simple terms, broadly speaking. Um, Barnett formula doesn't lock in beneficial treatment to Scotland. It's pre-Barnett, the money that was spent. Uh, and, and outside of London in the southeast, for the reasons that we've rehearsed, you know, Scot- Scotland's got a large landmass, a small population, relatively speaking. We've got deep-seated health and social problems from industrial decline, so so there are costs there to be met. And um, but but all Barnet does is bring certainty and stability. That means you don't have an annual negotiation as to what your budget should be. So the civil servants love it, um, but there's not much evidence that it's good for Scotland longer term. Now, the civil servants um, advising government would argue over the years, no, Barnett's, it just takes the politics out of the budget round. But if you listen to, for example, I most recently heard David Martin, the excellent former MEP Labour, uh, former president of the European Parliament, arguing that Scotland should have fiscal autonomy, basically full federal you know, independence within the UK, was how he put it. Now, what I thought was a sort of interesting sidebar there that everyone missed was that what David was arguing is that Scotland should raise all its own taxes, should spend all that it needs and then send money to London for central services such as foreign affairs and defence. 
Now, you've spotted the, the flaw in the subsidy argument there because what David's arguing is, of course, that with fiscal autonomy, independence in the UK, we'd be sending money south, not the other way around. So if there was a big fiscal transfer, how come it wouldn't be coming in the other direction? And of course, David is correct. The point, the point of, of, of having financial autonomy, and you know, when devolution first happened and independence seemed a long way off, polling was in the 20s, mm. I argued very strongly in the first term of parliament for us to have financial independence within the UK as the next stepping stone to independence. I no longer think that, 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 that just greater devolution is ever going to answer our problems, not least because it doesn't get us back into the European Union. I don't think iterating devolution is any way. And, and as an MP at Westminster, I can detect absolutely no will uh, within the House of Commons to look at something like that. In the previous episode, we discussed Roger Mullins' point that Scotland really couldn't afford not to be independent. It's, going in, the other, it's yeah. going in the other direction. Indeed. But the point of having financial control as an independent country is that you can then make choices. Mm -hmm. You can say, you know, you, you have to be responsible for your tax base. It's not like you can say, say well, we're going to whack everyone's tax up and damn the consequences. You have to mature as a democracy because you know that, that there is a relationship between revenue and tax rates and you need to find your balance. Now, I don't think that Scotland would choose to be like America or Ireland with low levels of taxation and low size of government. I think that Scotland would seek to earn the right to be more like a Nordic country with uh, but people would need to regard their tax as money well spent. So you need to have good, well-run institutions, well-run government pr producing services of a very high quality. And we've got much of that just now, but much of it needs to be built. And you make choices about what will let the economy sing. And you make investment calls. As a small country, you have to choose. And you would make calls about where you're going to put your, your resources. And, and that would be a great debate to have as a country because, you know, we need an economic strategy that's future-facing. It's about net zero, it's about renewables, it's about technology and digital, the digital economy, it's about the things we're strong in in life sciences and investment and financial services. You know, we, we should, as a country, be, be having that debate. At the moment, we iterate our way through doing what we did yesterday, doing it a wee bit different tomorrow. We need radical change. Back to the, the sage Roger Mullins point, yeah. doing nothing is the biggest risk. We can't afford not to do anything. There's a storm raging in the world whether it's climate or inequality, and we need to act now to put it right. But the, the, the future can be a very good one. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about you know having the ability to act radically and so forth, let's go back to an older subject and one that, uh, that features a, a famous near neighbour in terms of population size and natural resources. Norway has benefited from an oil fund, I think now worth a trillion US dollars. Should we learn from the UK's failure on this and do something similar to Norway for an independent Scotland in terms of Scotland's renewable bounty? 110%. No, actually, 1999, when I was lucky enough to be asked to be Shadow Finance Minister, a grand title for an opposition uh, job, um, the first people to phone me up were the government of Norway to say, we'd like you to come to Norway to have a look at this new fund that we've got set up. So it was only relatively recently that they properly invested in that. Mm -hmm. And now it's worth a trillion. 1% one, 1 of the world's equities are held by the government of, of Norway. And it, it, it's the interest on that, the, the annual return on it, not interest, you know, the return on their investment uh, is, is a remarkable source of revenue for, forever for them. Mm -hmm. um, um, the, the oil money has gone, largely. Um, not, not all of it, but largely. But the principle is still there. And so what I, I argued last summer as part of the advisory group on economic recovery 
was that the government, one, should be a lot better at managing its own investments. The history of our involvement in Ferguson's, in Presswick, in Burnt Island is not good. These are not investments that were distressed assets that have not been managed well. So we needed to, I think we need to professionalise that, mm -hmm. then extend the logic. Um, we might not have oil money, but you can borrow very cheaply at the moment. Um, and you look to, let's take a country like Singapore, which is a completely different democracy and uh, many aspects of it, not, not as democratic as we would want to be. It's not the model we would choose. We looked at it. It's not the sort of country we would seek to be, but there's got a lot of assets. And one of the most interesting things that, that it's got, apart from, um, uh, you know, a, well, a, a remarkable growth story. When, when they broke from Malaysia and people thought they were a backwater, they're now one of the world centres. But they've got a company called Tomasic, which is effectively like the Norwegian Oil Fund, only it's not funded by oil. It's funded by clever investment. And they mm. set it up in the 70s as a job creation uh, investment scheme. And now it's basically a sovereign wealth fund um, which invests all over the world. It's invested in Scotland. It's invested in the UK. And there's lessons there. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we can be as big as Tomasic, but if we, we need to start now and over time you can build it. And one of the things that Scotland's got, which is actually world class, is asset management, investment management expertise. Companies like Bailey Gifford, Walter Scott, Aberdeen, um, and so on. Aegon out at Kames uh, 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 Capital, out at the Gale. We've got some outstanding people. So we should be able to get this right if we engage that level of skill and invest. And heavens above, we might be able to invest and cover our state pension, back it by investments, which Singapore does. Everyone's mm -hmm. got their own um, investment uh, pension there. So if we started now, and then, yes, you're right, renewables is a good example. The other thing that Norway did, not just the pension fund where it saved the proceeds rather than spent them in tax terms, but they also retained an equity stake in the companies that did the exploration. So Statoil, um, Britain obviously privatised all of its oil companies, but Statoil continues to operate under the name Equinor, Equal Norway, as they seek to transition to be a uh, sustainable um, um, non-oil firm in due course, although they're continuing to explore now. They announced a new field last year, which again would be controversial in our system for all the obvious reasons of judgment as to what you should do. But, but Equinor, last year, I think, paid $2.5 billion in dividends to the, the government of Norway. Tomasic is responsible for, I think, one third of public finance revenue for Singapore. Now, Equinor is run 70% owned by the state, 30% by Fidelity, um, Vanguard and other effectively very much red and tooth and claw capitalist organisations, mm -hmm. proving that you can both be commercially run but in the public interest because they do both at once. They're run with private investors, with a, a public owner, and they're, they're a well-run company but in the public interest because they pay dividends to the state. Now, Mrs Thatcher would have hated that. <laughs> Treasury orthodoxy would have hated that. But I'm not saying that we should nationalise in the way we did in the 70s because that didn't work. When companies are run without you know, the, the, the consumer and the end user in mind, they can fail. But you can have enlightened entre entrepreneurial activism from the state, which can be an active investor in companies, take investment calls, as we do at present, but in a very small scale with the Scottish National Investment Bank and its predecessor at Scottish Enterprise, we can be much better investors, not just in distressed assets like Ferguson's, 
but in the assets of the future. So, for example, why don't we keep equity stakes on the offshore wind farms that are being licensed at the moment by the Crown Estate, which is devolved? Why wouldn't we have as a condition of that that the state retains a 5, 10, whatever it is, percent equity stake? That can be true of any number of different things that the government... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are lessons to be learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the the other uh, questions I wanted to ask is perhaps a final couple of questions here, uh, is about something that, that I hear all the time, which is I cover international trade at Westminster and uh, people talk about where Scotland's exports go. For example, you know, 62% of our manufactured goods go actually outside of the UK and into the UK, Europe and the world. Um, but we're always told we're reliant on uh, the rest of the UK for trade. Not taking into account for a fact that uh, Scotland is actually England's second biggest trading partner after the US as well. But what are your thoughts on the future of a border between Scotland and England? Well, borders uh, I'm not in favour of as a general principle. There's not much to merit them, really, um, which is the whole ideal behind the European Union, why we would be so enthusiastic for it. If you look across the Nordic region, Norway outside of Europe, no border really effectively between it and Sweden. Um, you know, goods pass with electronic checks rather than, and people move anyway. So with respect to the border, this is another one of these areas, Drew, where I think we need to have set out in advance of a referendum exactly what the vision and the order will be. Um, People will move irrespective. The border that we're having imposed at the moment is a direct result of Brexit. It's the choice of the UK government to have a border. Um, you know, many people who who voted for Brexit didn't anticipate that we would be exiting the single market and the customs union in a in a hard fashion, which we have done. So that border is a problem, I think, for uh, the United Kingdom. It's been imposed to our west and to our east. What will if develop over time as to how that's managed? Because what, lo and behold, Boris Johnson doesn't like the consequences. <laughs> yeah. So we will see what happens um, with respect to the how that border's functioning, and that will become what the border is between Scotland and, well, the European Union and and the rest of the UK when we join the European Union. So it's not an issue that will happen overnight. If, you know, if people are right, it will take us something like seven years from the vote to become a member of the European Union, maybe quicker. That's when the border issue kicks in. So it's not an overnight issue, um, but we would seek to have it functioning. As you say, the majority of our manufactured goods already go outside the UK and they're, they're the... The, the items that are in lorries, that we, we saw the disasters in Kent when mm. Brexit first happened. That, so that would be the worry there. The v- vast bulk of the, the exports that people refer to when they talk of the rest of the UK are service exports, which wouldn't, you know, again, it remains to be seen exactly um, how that's functioning at the moment. I'm as yet unclear as to how the barriers are working with the, the, Euro- the European Union and the UK at present. But services are a different thing from Indeed. manufacturing yeah. exports when it comes to as are, as are oil and gas and so forth, which are other exports from Scotland to the rest of the UK. So. Exactly. But we, we, we ought to be, you know, striking to have a very fluid, open border. It won't mm-hmm. affect people. Obviously, you'll be able to tra- travel without difficulty. Yeah. I mean, remember, you know, I remember Ed Miliband arguing in 2014 that there would be armed guards at the border even though we would, you know, because we would be kicked out of the European Union and, and we'd have to rejoin Schengen going in. I mean, so much rubbish is talked. And, you know, and I'm sure there'll be t- TV cameras, camera referendum, you know, going to, but, you know, people will still be able to shop. And the way you are now, you can travel, you know, all across the Nordic region without difficulty. These are things that can be worked out. 
And I think administratively, we've got to be ahead of the game again, learning the lessons from from Brexit. I spoke to a manufactured exporter a couple of months ago, who, who all of his goods um, were, were headed for Germany and the Netherlands, and they, they, they were stuck in quarantine. Um, and, and the reason for this was not because of political philosophy around Brexit, it was just they had messed up, the UK government had messed up the administration mm-hmm. of customs checks. And so it was an administrative nightmare rather than a political one. And these are lessons that we can learn well in advance of of putting it to the test in a referendum. Indeed. Well, Andrew, you've been generous with your uh, time today. We've co- tried to cover the challenges, uh, which I think you've tackled honestly, the the uh, opportunities and also some of the myths. But are there any other uh, myths about Scottish independence you're particularly uh, fond of debunking or is there anything you'd oh, like to I suppose to the other one to mention which often came up is is the setup costs. So people would argue, I, I think in the white paper we argued, I can't actually remember the number, but let's say it was a few hundred million pounds to set up the new Scottish government departments that we would need. And we, we commissioned the London School of Economics to look into this. And in actual fact, you know, the, the, the actual number that you alight upon, whether it's 400 million, a billion, three billion, it doesn't actually matter because you should regard these setup costs like an investment because what the LSE taught us is that within six years you'd be making your money back mm. because you'd be doing it rather than sending money to London to run departments again in the centre of London, expensive real estate, expensive people. This would be money that would be circulating in Scotland. You know, your your central bankers would all be, you know, well-paid professionals working in the central bank, whether it's in Edinburgh or Wishaw, as many people would would, 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 would require. No, no, joking aside, you would have civil servants based in Scotland, so the setup costs pay back within about six years, according to the LSE. So no matter what they are, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why pay money to have your government done for you somewhere else when you could be having all of the benefits of having a proper capital city or capital cities if you spread government across um, the regions of Scotland, which we ought to do? So there's there's another one of these ones which 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 isn't true. But in general, Drew, whenever you're hearing arguments against independence, they tend to be an implicit criticism of how Britain is run now rather than the possibilities for what Scotland could be. So don't compare Scotland now um, uh, when you're thinking about whether or not to become independent. Compare Scotland to the best performing countries in the world, Denmark, Finland, New Zealand, Ireland, whatever the model, it doesn't matter, the Netherlands. And ask ourselves the question, why can't Scotland achieve what they've achieved, both as countries with their economies, but also crucially with their society and their democracy. And and, and and is being part of the UK, Brexit Britain, long-term decline of the economy relatively, dropping down the league tables um, with an, you know, the most unequal society in the developed world, is that as good as it gets or can you do better? And I think the human instinct is to improve each generation and we should look at independence as a generation's cause it will be a generation's work to deliver all of the benefits. Many of them will accrue overnight. Many of them will take time. But they will all be hard. It will be very hard work, but it will be worth it. Well, Andrew Wilson, thank you for joining me in this episode of Scotland's Choice and uh, for your time today. Thank you, Drew, for having me. Well, as we've heard, the change will be challenging in future and there will be a transition, but the benefits compared to failing UK will be worth it. There's no reason why Scotland couldn't rejoin the EU and there's a lot of misinformation on deficits and currency requirements. Deficits themselves are normal in every country. 
and pensions are safe under independence, but the UK also has the lowest in Europe at the moment, so we'd be better in a future independent Scotland. Thanks for listening and don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.